Section 3 of The Overture From Swan's Way This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust Translated by Scott Moncrief Section 3 And so I must set forth without viaticum, must climb each step of the staircase against my heart, as the saying is, climbing in opposition to my heart's desire, which was to return to my mother, since she had not, by her kiss, given my heart leave to accompany me forth. That hateful staircase, up which I always passed with such dismay, gave out a smell of varnish which had to some extent absorbed, made definite and fixed, the special quality of sorrow that I felt each evening, and made it perhaps even more cruel to my sensibility, because, when it assumed this olfactory guise, my intellect was powerless to resist it. When we have gone to sleep with a maddening toothache, and are conscious of it only as a little girl whom we attempt time after time to pull out of the water, or as a line of Moliere, which we repeat incessantly to ourselves, it is a great relief to wake up, so that our intelligence can disentangle the idea of toothache from any artificial semblance of heroism or rhythmic cadence. It was the precise converse of this relief which I felt when my anguish at having to go up to my room invaded my consciousness in a manner infinitely more rapid, instantaneous almost, a manner at once insidious and brutal as I breathed in, a far more poisonous thing than any moral penetration, the peculiar smell of the varnish upon that staircase. Once in my room I had to stop every loophole, to close the shutters, to dig my own grave as I turned down the bedclothes, to wrap myself in the shroud of my nightshirt. But before burying myself in the iron bed which had been placed there, because on summer nights I was too hot among the rep curtains of the four-poster. I was stirred to revolt, and attempted the desperate stratagem of a condemned prisoner. I wrote to my mother, begging her to come upstairs, for an important reason, which I could not put in writing. My fear was that Francoise, my aunt's cook, who used to be put in charge of me when I was at Cambrai, might refuse to take my note. I had a suspicion that, in her eyes, to carry a message to my mother when there was a stranger in the room would appear flatly inconceivable, just as it would be for the doorkeeper of a theatre to hand a letter to an actor upon the stage. For things which might or might not be done, she possessed a code at once imperious, abundant, subtle, and uncompromising, on points themselves imperceptible or irrelevant, which gave it a resemblance to 
those ancient laws which combine such cruel ordinances as the massacre of infants at the breast, with prohibitions, or exaggerated refinement, against seething the kid in his mother's milk, or eating of the sinew which is upon the hollow of the thigh. This code, if one could judge it by the sudden obstinacy which she would put into her refusal to carry out certain of our instructions, seemed to have foreseen such social complications and refinements of fashion as nothing in Francois's surroundings or in her career as a servant in a village household could have put into her head, and we were obliged to assume that there was latent in her some past existence in the ancient history of France, noble and little understood, just as there is in those manufacturing towns where old mansions still testify to their former courtly days, and chemical workers toil among delicately sculptured scenes of the miracle of Theophilus, or the Katfi Aimon. In this particular instance, the article of her code, which made it highly improbable that, barring an outbreak of fire, Françoise would go down and disturb Mamma, when Monsieur Swann was there for so unimportant a person as myself, was one embodying the respect she showed not only for the family, as for the dead, for the clergy, or for royalty, but also for the stranger within our gates, a respect which I should perhaps have found touching in a book, but which never failed to irritate me on her lips, because of the solemn and gentle tones in which she would utter it, and which irritated me more than usual this evening, when the sacred character in which she invested the dinner-party might have the effect of making her decline to disturb its ceremonial. But to give myself one chance of success, I lied without hesitation, telling her that it was not in the least myself who had wanted to write to Mamma, but Mamma who, on saying good-night to me, had begged me not to forget to send her an answer about something she had asked me to find, and that she would certainly be very angry if this note were not taken to her. I think that Françoise disbelieved me, for, like those primitive men whose senses were so much keener than our own, she could immediately detect, by signs imperceptible by the rest of us, the truth or falsehood of anything that we might wish to conceal from her. She studied the envelope for five minutes, as though an examination of the paper itself, and the look of my handwriting, could enlighten her as to the nature of the contents, or tell her to which article of her code she ought to refer the matter. Then she went out with an air of resignation, which seemed to imply, What a dreadful thing for parents to have a child like this! A moment later she returned to say that they were still at the ice stage, 
and that it was impossible for the butler to deliver the note at once, in front of everybody, but that when the finger-bowls were put round, he would find a way of slipping it into Mamma's hand. At once my anxiety subsided. It was now no longer, as it had been a moment ago, until to-morrow that I had lost my mother, for my little line was going, to annoy her, no doubt, and doubly so, because this contrivance would make me ridiculous in Swann's eyes, but was going all the same, to admit me, invisibly and by stealth, into the same room as herself, was going to whisper from me into her ear, for that forbidden and unfriendly dining-room, where but a moment ago the ice itself, with burned nuts in it, and the finger-bowls, seemed to me to be concealing pleasures that were mischievous and of a mortal sadness, because Mamma was tasting of them, and I was far away, had opened its doors to me, and, like a ripe fruit which bursts through its skin, was going to pour out into my intoxicated heart the gushing sweetness of Mamma's attention, while she was reading what I had written. Now I was no longer separated from her. The barriers were down. An exquisite thread was binding us. Besides, that was not all, for surely Mamma would come. As for the agony through which I had just passed, I imagine that Swann would have laughed heartily at it, if he had read my letter and had guessed its purpose. Whereas, on the contrary, as I was to learn in due course, a similar anguish had been the bane of his life for many years, and no one, perhaps, could have understood my feelings at that moment so well as himself. To him, that anguish which lies in knowing that the creature one adores is in some place of enjoyment where oneself is not, and cannot follow. To him that anguish came through love, to which it is, in a sense, predestined, by which it must be equipped and adapted. But when, as had befallen me, such an anguish possesses one's soul before love has yet entered into one's life, then it must drift, awaiting love's coming, vague and free, without precise attachment, at the disposal of one sentiment to-day, of another to-morrow, of filial piety, or affection for a comrade. And the joy with which I first bound myself apprentice, when Francoise returned, to tell me that my letter would be delivered, Swann, too, had known well that false joy which a friend can give us, or some relative of the woman we love, when on his arrival at the house or theatre where she is to be found, for some ball or party or first night at which he is to meet her, he sees us wandering outside, desperately awaiting some opportunity of communicating with her. 
he recognizes us, greets us familiarly, and asks what we are doing there, and when we invent a story of having some urgent message to give to his relative or friend, he assures us that nothing could be more simple, takes us in at the door, and promises to send her down to us in five minutes. How much we love him, as at that moment I loved Francoise, the good-natured intermediary, who by a single word has made supportable, human, almost propitious, the inconceivable, infernal scene of gaiety, in the thick of which we have been imagining swarms of enemies, perverse and seductive, beguiling away from us, even making laugh at us, the woman whom we love. If we are to judge of them by him, this relative who has accosted us, and who is himself an initiate in those cruel mysteries, then the other guests cannot be so very demoniacal. Those inaccessible and torturing hours into which she had gone to taste of unknown pleasures, behold, a breach in the wall, and we are through it. Behold, one of the moments whose series will go to make up their sum, a moment as genuine as the rest, if not actually more important to ourself, because our mistress is more intensely a part of it. We picture it to ourselves, we possess it, we intervene upon it, almost we have created it, namely, the moment in which he goes to tell her that we are waiting there below. And very probably the other moments of the party will not be essentially different, will contain nothing else so exquisite or so well able to make us suffer, since this kind friend has assured us that, of course, she will be delighted to come down, it will be far more amusing for her to talk to you than to be bored up there. Alas! Swann had learned by experience that the good intentions of a third party are powerless to control a woman who is annoyed to find herself pursued, even into a ballroom, by a man whom she does not love. Too often the kind friend comes down again, alone. My mother did not appear, but with no attempt to safeguard my self-respect, which depended upon her keeping up the fiction that she had asked me to let her know the result of my search for something or other, made Francoise tell me, in so many words, there is no answer. Words I have so often since then heard the hall-porters in mansions, and the flunkies in gambling-clubs, and the like, repeat to some poor girl, who replies, in bewilderment, What? He said nothing. It's not possible. You did give him my letter, didn't you? Very well. I shall wait a little longer. And just as she invariably protests that she does not need the extra gas which the porter offers to light for her, 
and sits on there, hearing nothing further, except an occasional remark on the weather, which the porter exchanges with a messenger, whom he will send off suddenly, when he notices the time, to put some customer's wine on the ice. So having declined Francoise's offer to make me some tea, or to stay beside me, I let her go off again to the servants' hall, and lay down and shut my eyes, and tried not to hear the voices of my family who were drinking their coffee in the garden. But after a few seconds I realized that, by writing that line to Mamma, by approaching, at the risk of making her angry, so near to her, that I felt I could reach out and grasp the moment in which I should see her again, I had cut myself off from the possibility of going to sleep, until I actually had seen her, and my heart began to beat more and more painfully, as I increased my agitation, by ordering myself to keep calm and to acquiesce in my ill fortune. Then, suddenly, my anxiety subsided. A feeling of intense happiness coursed through me, as when a strong medicine begins to take effect and one's pain vanishes. I had formed a resolution to abandon all attempts to go to sleep without seeing Mamma, and had decided to kiss her at all costs, even with the certainty of being in disgrace with her for long afterwards when she herself came up to bed. The tranquillity which followed my anguish made me extremely alert, no less than my sense of expectation, my thirst for, and my fear of danger. Noiselessly I opened the window and sat down on the foot of my bed, hardly daring to move in case they should hear me from below. Things outside seemed also fixed in mute expectation, so as not to disturb the moonlight, which, duplicating each of them and throwing it back by the extension, forwards, of a shadow denser and more concrete than its substance, had made the whole landscape seem at once thinner and longer, like a map which, after being folded up, is spread out upon the ground. What had to move, a leaf of the chestnut tree, for instance, moved, but its minute shuddering, complete, finished to the last detail, and with utmost delicacy of gesture, made no discord with the rest of the scene, and yet was not merged in it, remained clearly outlined, exposed upon the surface of silence, which absorbed nothing from them, the most distant sounds, those which must have come from gardens at the far end of the town, could be distinguished with such exact finish that the impression they gave of coming from a distance seemed due only to their pianissimo execution, like those movements on muted strings so well performed by the orchestra of the conservatoire, that, although one does not lose a single note, one thinks all the same that they are being played 
somewhere outside, a long way from the concert hall, so that all the old subscribers, and my grandmother's sisters too, when Swann had given them his seats, used to strain their ears as if they had caught the distant approach of an army on the march, which had not yet rounded the corner of the Rue de Trevise. I was well aware that I had placed myself in a position than which none could be counted upon to involve me in graver consequences at my parents' hands, consequences far graver indeed than a stranger would have imagined, and such as, he would have thought, could follow only some really shameful fault. But in the system of education which they had given me, faults were not classified in the same order as in that of other children, and I had been taught to place at the head of the list, doubtless because there were no other class of faults from which I needed to be more carefully protected, those in which I can now distinguish the common feature that one succumbs to them by yielding to a nervous impulse. But such words as these last had never been uttered in my hearing, no one had yet accounted for my temptations in a way which might have led me to believe that there was some excuse for my giving in to them, or that I was actually incapable of holding out against them. Yet I could easily recognize this class of transgressions by the anguish of mind which preceded, as well as by the rigor of the punishment which followed them. And I knew that what I had just done was in the same category as certain other sins for which I had been severely chastised, though infinitely more serious than they. When I went out to meet my mother, as she herself came up to bed, and when she saw that I had remained up so as to say good-night to her again in the passage, I should not be allowed to stay in the house a day longer. I should be packed off to school next morning. So much was certain. Very good. Had I been obliged, the next moment, to hurl myself out of the window, I should still have preferred such a fate. For what I wanted now was Mamma, and to say good-night to her. I had gone too far along the road which led to the realization of this desire to be able to retrace my steps. I could hear my parents' footsteps as they went with Swann, and when the rattle of the gate assured me that he had really gone, I crept to the window. Mamma was asking my father if he had thought the lobster good, and whether Monsieur Swann had had some of the coffee and pistachio ice. I thought it rather so-so, she was saying. Next time we shall have to try another flavor. I can't tell you, said my great-aunt, what a change I find in Swann. He is quite antiquated. She had grown so accustomed to seeing Swann always in the same stage of adolescence, that it was a shock to her to find him suddenly less young than the age she still attributed to him. And the others, too, were beginning to remark in Swann that abnormal, excessive, scandalous senescence meet only in a celibate, 
in one of that class for whom it seems that the great day which knows no morrow must be longer than for other men, since for such a one it is void of promise, and from its dawn the moments steadily accumulate without any subsequent partition among his offspring. I fancy he has a lot of trouble with that wretched wife of his, who lives with a certain Monsieur de Charlus, as all Cambrai knows. It's the talk of the town. My mother observed that, in spite of this, he had looked much less unhappy of late, and he doesn't nearly so often do that trick of his, so like his father, of wiping his eyes and passing his hand across his forehead. I think myself that, in his heart of hearts, he doesn't love his wife any more. Why, of course he doesn't, answered my grandfather. He wrote me a letter about it ages ago, to which I took care to pay no attention, but it left no doubt as to his feelings, let alone his love for his wife. Hello! You too! You never thanked him for the Asti, he went on, turning to his sisters-in-law. What? We never thanked him. I think between you and me that I put it to him quite neatly, replied my Aunt Flora. Yes, you managed it very well. I admired you for it, said my Aunt Celine. But you did it very prettily, too. Oh, yes, I liked my expression about nice neighbors. What? Do you call that thanking him? shouted my grandfather. I heard that all right, but devil take me if I guessed it was meant for Swan. You may be quite sure he never noticed it. Come, come, Swan is not a fool. I am positive he appreciated the compliment. You didn't expect me to tell him the number of bottles, or to guess what he paid for them. My father and mother were left alone, and sat down for a moment. Then my father said, Well, shall we go up to bed? As you wish, dear, though I don't feel in the least like sleeping. I don't know why. It can't be the coffee ice. It wasn't strong enough to keep me awake like this. But I see a light in the servants' hall. Poor Francoise has been sitting up for me, so I will get her to unhook me while you go and undress. My mother opened the lattice door which led from the hall to the staircase. Presently I heard her coming upstairs to close her window. I went quietly into the passage. My heart was beating so violently that I could hardly move, but at least it was throbbing no longer with anxiety, but with terror and with joy. I saw in the well of the stair a light coming upwards from Mamma's candle. Then I saw Mamma herself. I threw myself upon her. For an instant she looked at me in astonishment, not realizing what could have happened. Then her face assumed an expression of anger. She said not a single word to me, and for that matter, I used to go for days on end without being spoken to, for 
far less offences than this. A single word from Mamma would have been an admission that further intercourse with me was within the bounds of possibility, and that might, perhaps, have appeared to me more terrible still, as indicating that, with such a punishment as was in store for me, mere silence, and even anger, were relatively puerile. A word from her then would have implied the false calm in which one converses with a servant to whom one has just decided to give notice. The kiss one bestows on a son who is being packed off to enlist, which would have been denied him if it had merely been a matter of being angry with him for a few days. But she heard my father coming from the dressing-room, where he had gone to take off his clothes, and, to avoid the scene which he would make if he saw me, she said, in a voice half-stifled by her anger, "'Run away at once. Don't let your father see you standing here like a crazy Jane.' But I begged her again to come and say good-night to me, terrified as I saw the light from my father's candle already creeping up the wall, but also making use of his approach as a means of blackmail, in the hope that my mother, not wishing him to find me there, as find me he must if she continued to hold out, would give it to me, and say, "'Go back to your room. I will come.' Too late. My father was upon us. Instinctively, I murmured, though no one heard me, I am done for. I was not, however. My father used constantly to refuse to let me do things which were quite clearly allowed by the more liberal charters granted me by my mother and grandmother, because he paid no heed to principles, and because in his sight there were no such things as rights of man. For some quite irrelevant reason, or for no reason at all, he would, at the last moment, prevent me from taking some particular walk, one so regular and so consecrated to my use, that to deprive me of it was a clear breach of faith. Or again, as he had done this evening, long before the appointed hour, he would snap out, "'Run along up to bed now. No excuses.' But then again, simply because he was devoid of principles, in my grandmother's sense, so he could not, properly speaking, be called inexorable. He looked at me for a moment with an air of annoyance and surprise, and then when Mamma had told him, not without some embarrassment, what had happened, said to her, "'Go along with him, then.' You said just now that you didn't feel like sleep, so stay in his room for a little. I don't need anything. But, dear, my mother answered timidly, whether or not I feel like sleep is not the point. We must not make the child accustomed. There's no question of making him accustomed, said my father, with a shrug of his shoulders. You can see quite well that the child is unhappy. After all, we aren't jailers. You'll end up by making him ill, and a lot of good that will do. 
There are two beds in his room. Tell Francoise to make up the big one for you, and stay beside him for the rest of the night. I'm off to bed, anyhow. I'm not nervous like you. Good night. It was impossible for me to thank my father. What he called my sentimentality would have exasperated him. I stood there, not daring to move. He was still confronting us, an immense figure in his white nightshirt, crowned with the pink and violet scarf of Indian cashmere, in which, since he had begun to suffer from neuralgia, he used to tie up his head, standing like Abraham in the engraving after Benozo Gozzoli, which Monsieur Swann had given me, telling Sarah that she must tear herself away from Isaac. Many years have passed since that night. The wall of the staircase, up which I had watched the light of his candle gradually climb, was long ago demolished. And in myself, too, many things have perished which, I imagined, would last for ever. And new structures have arisen, giving birth to new sorrows and new joys in those days I could not have foreseen. Just as now, the old are difficult of comprehension. It is a long time, too, since my father has been able to tell Mamma to go with the child. Never again will such hours be possible for me, but of late I have been increasingly able to catch, if I listen attentively, the sound of the sobs which I had the strength to control in my father's presence, and which broke out only when I found myself alone with Mamma. Actually, their echo has never ceased. It is only because life is now growing more and more quiet about me, that I hear them afresh, like those convent bells which are so effectively drowned during the day by the noises of the streets, that one would suppose them to have been stopped forever, until they sound out again through the silent evening air. End of section three from the overture to Swan's Way read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, winter two thousand and seven.